Thank you for that song. What a wonderful reminder of what the Lord has done for us through the shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Where would you be tonight without the Lord Jesus in your life? Do you remember when you were lost? When you were without God and without hope in this world? Heading for hell. Deserving to go. But somehow, somewhere, sometime, you heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father drew you to the Son. Jesus said in John's Gospel, No one comes to me except my Father who sent me draws them. And I'll raise them up on the last day. Aren't you glad for the day when the Father drew you to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful to be in church tonight. Thanks for giving priority to the evening. I'm certain there are other things you could have done, other places you could have gone, but you chose to return to God's house. I think a church needs revival, kind of like a car needs a tune-up. Did you ever have a car that died? in the middle of the intersection and the whole town was honking their horn behind you? That happened to me once. I almost got out of the car and went to the guy behind me and said, hey buddy, I'll make a deal with you. If you go start my car, I'll be glad to honk your horn. (laughs) Thought about it, but didn't do it. When that happens, it's a good indication it's time to pull into the garage and let the mechanic scope things out and see what's going on. Inevitably, there'll be some corrections that need to be made. Something needs to be added that's not there now, or something needs to be subtracted that is there now. We run at optimum effectiveness and maximum efficiency in God's kingdom when the Lord keeps our hearts tuned up. And revival does that for a church, both individuals and a collective body. So let's pray right now and ask for him to speak to our hearts. Father, would you talk to us one more time from your word? Would you cause your Holy Spirit, who intercedes for the saints with sighs too deep for words, come and deal with us on practical, current issues in our relationship with you and with each other and with a world that we touch outside of these walls. Let this service tonight be a tool in your hand to tune us up to maximum effectiveness and efficiency for you. May we all respond in quick obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I remember a Sunday night after the evening service where I preached, some laymen in the church suggested that my wife and I join them at a nearby restaurant for what they call food and fellowship. I don't miss those opportunities very often. I said, that's a great idea. We'll go in our car, you go in yours, we'll follow you wherever you choose to be okay. Well, they went down the main boulevard of that town and parked in the parking lot adjacent to the restaurant. And as I recall, I was the first one in the entrance. And we were greeted by a very enthusiastic hostess. She grinned broadly and asked us how many in our party. I estimated the crowd and she collected an ample supply of glossy, plastic, laminated menus, ushered us to a corner booth. 
We slid around that vinyl upholstered booth and she dealt out the menus. We discussed what we would order. Folks were wanting pie a la modes and hot fudge sundaes and cheeseburgers and fries. Believe it or not, I was trying to eat lightly that night and I heard the place was famous for white New England clam chowder. I was musing on that when our attention was distracted with a peculiar sound. It sounded kind of like I ignored it at first. Here came the waitress to take the order. She left, but the sound didn't. Here it came again. The more you get to know me, the quicker you'll conclude my temperament does not tolerate unresolved issues. I said, did you hear that? They said, yes. Did you? Me too. What is it? I don't know, but it's kind of irritating. But I didn't want to make a big deal about it. Well, here came the waitress with her food, and she distributed it around the table. And I was the only preacher at the table. And I guess somewhere in the Bible it says if there's a preacher at the table, he's it to say the prayer. <laughs> so we bowed our head, and I said an appropriate table grace. And simultaneous to my prayer was my realization of what's going on. Here came that sound again. And while I bowed my head to say the prayer, I felt a mist hit the back of my bowling head. Attached to the wall, behind the booth, up against the ceiling, was a plastic wood grain box. It was a time dispenser. Periodically, it would fog the room with a mist. I don't know tonight if it was room deodorizer or bug spray. But what I do know is when I bowed my head to say the prayer, I felt the mist hit my bowling head before it fell in my clam chowder. <laughs> and the chowder tasted a little gross. I politely but abruptly lost my appetite and silently decided, man, I'm never coming here again. Well, a couple years later, I was driving down the interstate, and it was near noon, and I needed to take a break. I got off on the off-ramp and headed down that same boulevard in that town. And I noticed that restaurant where I'd been before had big old poster attached to the windows. You know what it said? Under new ownership and management. I thought I'd give them a chance. I walked in. Wow! It was totally redone. Very heavily padded, opulent, cushy, luxurious carpeting. Attractive diagonal redwood paneling color-coordinated wallpaper and booth upholstery, brand-new menus, and a relocated bug spray. <laughs> it seemed as though the new owner and manager walked in with absolute total authority, and he surveyed the environment, and he discovered some opportunities for improvement. And since he was the owner and the manager, he began to implement some changes. And the evidence showed, he said, let's tear that out, let's throw that away, let's move that, let's paint that, and you're fired. And the bottom line was a substantial improvement. He had the authority to do so. Because he was the new owner and the new manager. And the central question of the evening is, are you currently living under new ownership and management? Where the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ could walk into your life and survey anything 
and make any changes, any corrections, any improvements with your total obedience and immediate cooperation, thorough compliance without any delay. Paul's working on that issue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's writing to believers to whom he'd ministered in the past, but he encourages them to go farther in the relationship with the Lord. Multiple clues and evidence what it looks like to live a life under new ownership and management. 1 Thessalonians 5th chapter, 12th verse. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid Every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What's Paul talking about here? He's describing a life that's being lived under new ownership and management. At verse 12 and 13, he moves on the sensitive issue of lay pastoral relationships. Now we ask you, brothers. It's important that I pause there for a second. That term, brothers, in the original language is a gender-neutral term used for both male and female born-again believers in the context of the church. Paul is not writing to the unsaved out in the world. This is a letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Some call it Thessalonica. I'm not nervous about that. It's pretty evident in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That term, brother, shows up at least one time in every chapter. It's pretty obvious and clear that he's not writing to the unsaved out in the world. His intended audience are born-again believers. Now we ask you, brothers, to what? Respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord. Next. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And third, live in peace with each other. As I studied those two verses, I wondered, what in the world is he doing working on that sensitive issue? And the obvious answer is there is a wrinkle there that needs to be ironed out. And I'm now in my 37th year of full-time itinerant evangelistic preaching ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. Every year from Honolulu to the Atlantic Ocean. And you would be shocked if you'd seen the gross, undeniable violations of those verses. You and I are responsible for our attitude and behavior towards ministerial leaders. I know we preachers are not perfect. That's why we fit in with the laity so well. 
It reminds me of the description of John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. You ever read that verse? It's been in the book for years. There was a what? Man, not an angel, not a deity, didn't turn the Trinity into a quartet. There was a man, but he was sent from God. Paul says here, respect, hold in high regard and love, and live in peace. At verse 14, he goes to another issue. And we urge you, brothers, there's that term again. He's talking to believers. Warn those who are idle, Encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Four instructions for those who would live under new ownership and management. First, warn the idle. Sometimes folks are not productively involved in God's work because they're lazy. They're apathetic. They're lukewarm. They're mediocre. Their priorities are misarranged. He says, warn the idle. And frankly, the best rendering of that I found was wake up and get with the program. <laughs> Next he says, encourage the timid. There are other times folks are not productively involved in God's work, credibly using their time and their talent and possessions for the kingdom priorities. Not because they're idle and lazy and apathetic and nominal. They're shy. They're handicapped. They're intimidated. They're inhibited. They don't need to be beat bloody. They need to be encouraged. Warn the idle. Wake up and get with the program. Encourage the timid. And that's best rendered. Come on, I believe in you. You can do it. Let's give it a try. Here's the book. We're going to have a class. I'll go with you. Encourage the timid. Next he says, help the weak. Well, isn't that a novel option to criticism? You don't need any spirituality to be a critic. And last time I talked to the home office, they weren't taking any more applications for critics. They got more than they know what to do with. <laughs> Warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. But you say, well, they made a mess. Well, help them clean it up. When you were first born again, receive the Lord as your Savior, you were not microwaved five seconds and quick zapped into instant holiness and perfection. If we'd all take a deep, honest inventory, we all got room to grow. Warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak. My wife, Vicki, and I have an only child, our daughter, Nikki. She's now 40 years old. But when she was brand new in this world, just home from the hospital, she had some weaknesses. She wanted to eat the craziest times of the night. That was more her mother's problem than mine. And I'm not going to talk about her diapers. What do you think I did with that baby and her diapers and her weaknesses? How many think I got a cardboard box and folded newspaper at the bottom, <laughs> sprinkle it with kitty litter, and put that baby in the box and set that box out in the garage? How many think I said, now when you get over your weaknesses, you can come in the house and be with the rest of us. Is that what I did? Obviously not. That little eight-pounder took over the whole house. <laughs> I remember spending all day Saturday trying to match the uncooperative pattern of gingham wallpaper in the baby's nursery. No wonder those rolls were on sale. 
She had some weaknesses. But she was a newborn in the family. And we made allowances. And as your church bridges into the community in creative, strategic ways, you're going to encounter folks who come through your doors and they're going to bring some weaknesses with them. The last thing they need is some perfectionistic hassler. Warn the idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Fourth thing he says in verse 14, he says, be patient with everyone. Why? Everyone else trying to be patient with you. Interesting, when you read this passage, you find several times when those terms extracted from the list of nine fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 show up. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, what? Patience. He's talking about what does a life look like when it's lived under new ownership and management. Be patient with everyone. Verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. You cannot afford the luxury of a grudge. You might be thinking, but you don't know what they did. I don't have a clue what they did. You don't know what she said. I'm sorry, it's none of my business. You don't know how bad I was hurt. I'm so sorry that you were hurt. But I do know that Jesus said to forgive 70 times 7. And to turn the other cheek. And this book says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here it says, don't pay back wrong for wrong. Is there somebody you need to forgive? What's he talking about? He's saying, what does a life look like when it's lived under new ownership and management? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. As I studied that, I was a little confused. I thought that was redundant language. Always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. I thought each other would include everyone else. Well, I looked it up. He's writing a letter to the church, a group of believers. The context carries the meaning, always try to be kind to each other in your local fellowship where you all worship and to everyone else outside of your walls. And wouldn't it be a great day when our talk and walk was consistent outside the walls of the church and inside the walls of the church? Verse 16, be joyful always. There's another one of those terms off that list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Well, I've heard people naively rebuttal and say, well, I'm not going to act happy and joyful. If I don't feel happy and joyful. First of all, it doesn't have a thing to do with an unpredictable ebb and flow of a human emotion we call happiness. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Have you ever noticed that kind of person where the whole room just seemed to brighten up when they left? (laughs) That's what he's working on here. Be joyful. Always. He's talking about what does a believer's life look like? When it's being lived under new ownership and management. 
For the top priority of a believer's heart is, God, I don't know what you want. But whatever you want, that's what I want. No place I'm not willing to go, nothing I'm not willing to do, nothing I'm not willing to say, nothing I'm not willing to give. I belong to you 100% without competition or reservation. Evidence of what it means to live a life under new ownership and management. Be joyful always. 17 says pray continually. That does not mean stay on your knees 24 hours a day. It does mean stay tuned in. And once you talk to him, let him talk back to you. You ever had one of those phone calls where all you got to say was, "Uh uh-huh? Oh, well, my. You don't say. Well, you might want to, uh-huh. Well, if I was you, I, uh uh-huh. Did you ever think about, uh uh-huh? Did you ever set the phone down? and go turn off the stove so you wouldn't burn the broccoli, and you went back and they didn't even know you were gone? (laughs) How many times have you and I prayed and God sitting in heaven saying, "Uh uh-huh, oh, never saw that coming. Don't say, my. And you hang up on him. When he says pray continually, that doesn't mean stay on your knees 24 hours a day. It means... Stay tuned in. And once you talk to him, let him talk back to you. Through prayer, meditation, musings, through the scripture. What priority to give the reading of God's word in your daily life? We all have 24 hours every day. We choose what we're going to do with our time. You go home, watch TV, that's a choice. You get on a computer, that's a choice. Get on the phone, that's a choice. Open a refrigerator, that's a choice. Get along with God and his word. That's a choice. Pray continually. 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this was God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why don't we admit it? Our default reaction is to complain and feel sorry for ourselves and try and vacuum some sympathy out of our bored listeners who are waiting for us to be quiet so they can tell us how bad they've had it lately. Paul is saying, take the high road, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As I studied that, I wondered, what in the world was he thinking when he wrote that? How could that be practical or realistic? Give thanks in all circumstances? I wouldn't be a bit surprised by what some of us here tonight have some circumstances that our initial reaction is not to give thanks for them. Well, the Lord took my attention to Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works. That term works means laser-focused energy expended on our behalf. All things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's just another way of saying you're living under new ownership and management. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus, 19 says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. King James translates it, quench not the spirit. The word picture from the language means don't snuff out a candle. Or don't dump a bucket of water on the campfire. Don't drown and douse the flame. How do we do that? Two ways. Doing what we know we ought not do quenches the spirit. Omitting doing what we know we ought to do also quenches the spirit. Remember when the Holy Spirit said, don't go there, but you went? 
Don't say that, but you said it. Don't drink that, but you drank it. Don't light that, but you lit it. Don't watch that, but you watched it. Quench not the spirit. Impulsive disobedience asserted against what we know God doesn't want us to do or does want us to do constitutes a grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. On the flip side, remember when he said, go there, but you stayed, or say something, but you were silent. Do something, but you were paralyzed. Give something, but you held back. Impulsive disobedience, where we assert our will over what we know God wants us to do or not do, can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. King James translates it, despise not prophetic utterings. What's that mean? It means don't turn off the preacher. That's what it means. And I don't mind admitting to you in some of my travels about the time I turn on, some folks tune out. Don't turn off the preacher. But he says, test everything, verse 21. These are days when you can't believe everything you hear. Radio, television, internet, printed page, public preaching. I mean, in Protestant evangelical America, there is a lot of prime rib and filet mignon out there. But you know what else? There's a lot of baloney out there, too. And you can't buy everything you hear. That's why he said, test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. We don't need to return to former days and times and places of the legalistic perfectionism but we certainly don't need to bounce to an opposite brain-dead error of liberal worldliness and compromise. And the good news is, in the middle of those two errors is a sensible, livable, balanced, biblical holiness where I live under his ownership and management. The top priority of my heart is to please him and do his will and be the person he wants me to be. Test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, regardless of your denominational background, preference, or affiliation. That word is in every Bible. I looked it up. It means cleanse, purify, make holy, separate, set apart for God's exclusive ownership and possession. And Paul was writing to believers he referred to as brothers in every chapter at least once. He addresses the letter to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 1, verse 1. It's clear beyond any debate that Paul is addressing Christians. But he comes in for a landing at chapter 5 and say, may God himself, the God of peace, cleanse, purify, separate you, set you apart, make you pure and holy for his exclusive ownership and possession. Sounds to me like living a life under new ownership and management. And I've concluded that's something I can't pull off by myself. No way can I live a holy, godly, sanctified life on my own initiative. That's why he added verse 24. 
The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. So it brings me back to the central question of the evening. Are you currently positioned in your relationship with God where you can truthfully say that you're living under his ownership and management? It's one thing to confess and repent of your sins and be born again. Receive the Lord as your Savior. It's something substantially beyond that to die to your own will and submit to his sovereign lordship where you're living under his ownership and management. Is there anything God requires of you that you're not willing to do or be or give or go or say? Any resistance, any tug of war going on between your will and God's will? It is absolutely absurd and arrogant to assume that any of us can devise a plan or strategy that will surpass that of God's will for our lives. Our best option between this second and when we check out of here is to discover and accomplish God's will for us and live daily under his ownership and management. We're going to share four verses of a well-loved invitation song. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. What's the name of that song? I surrender what? All. Did you notice they didn't title that, I negotiate a compromise? (laughs) There's no victory in compromise or concession. The Lord's here. He's spoken to our heart. One more time, the Holy Spirit has tailored God's word to our particular hearts, personal situations. And I'd like to offer you a respectful opportunity to come and pray. Please stand. Would you bow your heads? Check your heart. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Discern his whisper. Be transparent before him. Refuse rationalizations or procrastinations or excuses or denials. And if you and the Lord need to have a talk before you go, now would be a mighty good time. And this altar would be a really good place. While we share the verses, If you want to come pray, you're welcome to step forward. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that um, as we bow down before you and we pray and we speak and we listen, that we have a God who is concerned, aware of our condition. You see us just as we are. And Lord, there's nothing that's hidden from you. You know what we think and you know our attitudes and you know when we fell and when we fall and you know when we, when, when we follow through as we should. Lord, you know us from the inside out. And in all honesty, that can be a little bit frightening. But even though you know us, you love us. You see us when we get up in the morning and as we begin our day and 
as we end the day and what we do through the day, Lord, you're, you're always there. You're always present. And Lord, I believe in every circumstance we find ourselves in, you have a will and a way that's better than our own. But Lord, I'll confess, oftentimes I settle for something less. Not because I want to do evil, but because I'm not as attentive as I should be. Lord, oftentimes we miss opportunities to serve you and to be aware of your presence, to love you and to love others like we should. Our good evangelist has, has painted a picture of what it means to be under new ownership. Ownership not of our own will, but the will of God. And it's a picture of forgiveness, of patience, of encouragement. Uh, it, it's a, an image of someone who is loving and rejoicing and thankful in all circumstances. Someone who is sanctified wholly, through and through, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't believe that when Paul wrote this letter, he was thinking of some false ideal of religion or false ideal of life that couldn't be lived. But he was practically speaking into the life of a church. We believe that it's possible to love God and to love others, to accomplish the will of God. But Lord, we also understand that we can't do this on our own. If we want to live this life of new ownership, we have to give possession of this body to you. We have to be living sacrifices, laying it all on the altar, knowing that in doing so, you can transform this life into something better, something that matters for eternity. So help us, not just in this moment, but as we go home and ponder this message to consider the actions of our life to consider our focus are there things that we're holding back from you are there relationships that we're holding on to are you calling us to more and and we're saying no and in so doing quenching this work of the spirit that can transform us change us Move us into a life that gives honor and glory to you. Lord, I believe it's simple. You're calling us to love you and to love others. And that's a work of the Spirit. That, that through all these qualities that we see in the Bible, it can just draw us into a deeper love relationship with you. It can help us to love others more effectively. And in doing so, we can live this life that you've envisioned for your people. Now, Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, we'll go with hearts that are clear. That, that we'll go with minds that are set. That, that we will be set on following you, finding your will and living it. And, Lord, we're going to give you praise because we know you're, you're at work. And, and in faith, Lord, we're trusting that that work will come to fullness in our life. Bless the church. Bless your evangelist as he prepares tomorrow for, for
for, for the evening service, Lord. May, may you fill his heart, his mind with the word you have for Marysville Church of the Nazarene. And Lord, may we be receptive to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Anybody wants to go out and eat? I think we're going to go to Frisch's tonight. Brother Moore, does that work for you? Who likes Frisch's? Say amen. That, yeah. Well, we're going there nonetheless. And so if you want to join us, that's where we'll be.